A reading from the first letter of John. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, of all the words in the English language, I think there are two that really stand out as the most used and overused and misused, that they have almost become completely meaningless. Guesses? Love and God. Fear, I feel like we still kind of have, a, you know, something in there. My, my title threw you off. I, I, that was misleading on my part. I mean, we talk about love in our culture all the time. We have all these little slogans, songs, t-shirts, signs, all commanding us to love. Love will find a way. Love wins. Do what you love. Love matters. Love trumps hate. Love is blind. What do we really mean by any of that? And a related question is, if we live in a world that is so sort of pervasive with love, then why don't we seem any happier? It's a very sad irony that though the word love permeates the language of the Western world in almost all areas of conversation, we are increasingly lonely, isolated, and fearful. I mean, it's sort of like how Lennon and McCartney could sing, love is all you need, and then within a few short years they could barely be in the same room together. It's kind of like that, right? What, what exactly do we mean by this? I would submit to you that we often use the word love as a gloss for some sort of self-expression or gratification, some sort of feeling. 
And because we have rooted our ideas about love in our own experience and emotions and feelings, love becomes a shapeshifter. It becomes as finicky as we are. And the more that we press on the word love, the less we seem to really understand what it means. Which is to say nothing about the word God. There's a great Seinfeld episode where George and Jerry are working on a pilot for NBC. It's when the show first starts getting really meta, right? And George is his usual panicky self. So he's sitting there with his therapist, and he's just agitated, and he can't calm down. And he says, well, I mean, what if the pilot gets picked up and becomes a series? And his therapist says, well, that would be great, George. You'll be rich and successful. George, yeah, that's exactly what I'm worried about. God would never let me be successful. He'd kill me first. He'll never let me be happy. The therapist replies, I thought you didn't believe in God. To which George says, I do for the bad things. <laughs> I actually read this week of a new study that shows younger people basically view God like George Costanza. They're not entirely sure that he's real, but they assume he's going to stomp them at some point. God seems to be, in this sense of the word, this cosmic algorithm that is set eternally on buzzkill. Just make sure they're not having too much fun down there, right? But maybe God isn't that at all. Maybe God is the fuzzy internal light. It could be that George Costanza is wrong and Oprah Winfrey is right, right? That God is really just sort of the consciousness, the thing that connects you and I, a feeling, a light. God is everything and everyone all at the same time. Much like love, I would suggest we tend to not really have much of an idea what we mean when we say the word. And I never thought this day would come, but I'm going to say now, as Rob Bell said, like a mirror, God appears to be more and more a reflection of whoever it is that happens to be talking about God at the moment. I think he's completely right. You can see this through the ages of theologians even, as they have drifted away from the apostolic message, right? Is that we just sort of recast God in our own image. I mean, if you've read any of the new atheist crowd, you're immediately struck, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. Who would want to, right? So when we read in St. John's first epistle that God is love, we have to recognize right out of the gate that we're in a bit of a quandary because two-thirds of those words have become so elastic, we can make them fit whatever we want, right? The way forward here actually, though, isn't super complex. In fact, most of the answers that we need are right in St. John's letter that was just read for us. But the way forward also isn't super easy because so many of us come from so many different places with such different visceral reactions to the statement, God is love. Now, I have to say, this sermon has been difficult for me to write for two reasons. One is that I was raised in fundamentalism, which is toward the George Costanza end of the spectrum, except that we believe God exists. We know he's angry, right? And so honestly, 
it's so much easier for me to tell you that God loves you and his love for you than it is for me to tell that to myself. So it's, it's hard for me to sort of wade through this. Why am, why am I stuck in this constant denial of his goodness, right? There's a second reason that writing this sermon was hard is because every time I'd start writing, I'd ask myself, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And then I just could see the dance you know, for like 10 minutes, and then I'd just have a blank page. So I'm passing that on as a gift. Now it's stuck in your head. Now you know what my week has been like. I think there are three things that we need to uncover here. Who is God? What is love? And where do we fit in? Who's God? What's love? Where do we fit in? Robert Jensen was a Lutheran theologian. May he rest in peace. He, he uh, died just last year. He was extremely creative in his work. And it's been said by people much smarter than I that his systematic theology, his, his work that gives frame to who God is and what God does can be summed up in one, like, very epitomizing Jensonian phrase. This is what Robert Jensen has to say to the question, who is God? God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. Right? God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, who previously raised Israel out of Egypt. It's actually a much denser statement than it seems at first, because embedded within it is Trinitarianism. As Romans 8 says, it is the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead that has been given to the church. It's Trinitarian, and it's also rooted in a long, deeply historical story, not only that Jesus was a person who died and was therefore raised from the dead, but that his death and resurrection was in some way a retelling of the story of Israel played out for us on the pages of the Old Testament. That's who God is. God is the God in the stories of the Old Testament and is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Which is to say, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who has been at work in the world from the beginning. If you want to know who God is, you will find him in and behind the story being told through the pages of Scripture. But this brings us right back to where we were just a couple weeks ago. Anybody can take the mosaic tiles of Scripture and rearrange them to make an image of a fox rather than the divine king. The apostolic message is absolutely crucial for us to understand how to go about making the composite picture that is on display for us in Scripture truly what it is, truly this triune God. And so we have to sort of interweave answers to these two questions, who is God and what exactly is love? And St. John tells us very directly in this passage, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There too is a deceptively short phrase that actually serves to underpin all that the church is and does in all of her life and throughout her entire calendar year. From Advent, when we are being taught to anticipate Christ's arrival, his sentness into the world, to Holy Week, when we are brought near to his suffering and death on Good Friday, week upon week, in word and sacrament, we seek to declare that love actually isn't blind. 
right? That, that true love, which is Christ in the world, is a love that sees with clarity and truth. And it sees that we are indeed very broken people who have wandered away from the source of life. We have turned away from love and have been tripping over imposters and seeking to exist in self-love ever since. And that turning away, that worship that we have given to all of the various frauds and imposters of the true love, that's called sin. That's what sin is at its root. As St. Augustine famously wrote, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Do you see? It's not about not loving. You were built to love. You're going to love something. And the thing that you love most is the thing that you end up worshiping. And in our rebellion, we have turned away from the one person, the one thing, the only being in the universe that deserves our worship. And we have tried to fashion things to worship out of everything else. And because of that, love can't just be fuzzy feelings. It can't be some indefinable light that just sort of rattles around inside of us. No, it actually it requires atonement, which is in that little defining phrase of St. John about what love is. Atonement was something that God's people in Israel would have been very familiar with. When Moses received the law after the people were brought out of Egypt, God told the people to set apart a day each year that has come to be called the Day of Atonement. And it's the one day of the year that one person from the entire community, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. For anyone else to do so or for the high priest to do so on any other day would result in death. It's the one day where they could enter in and the priest would have to bathe and put on special garments and enter into the sanctuary with incense and the blood of the sacrifice. And the priest would have to make there atonement for himself, for his family, for the holy place, for the altar, and for the whole community of Israel. And this was how Israel was made right before God. All the debts of her sin were being symbolically paid for with the blood of goats and bulls on the Day of Atonement. It was a very elaborate ritual. So if you're a read-through-the-Bible kind of person and you sort of get bogged down, at least make it through Leviticus. I realize there's a lot of laws in there, but there's a lot in there that's super, super important to help us understand this idea of atonement. The writer of Hebrews tells us that all of this, all of this ritual in Israel was just a shadow of what Christ was accomplishing on the cross. That Christ is the true heavenly tabernacle, the true high priest, and that he enters into the heavenly holy of holies, not with the blood of goats and bulls, but with his own priceless blood to pay for our rebellion, our sin, to bring atonement, to bring us back into relationship with God, so that as we heard in our gospel reading and in our epistle reading, he will abide with us and we will abide in him. All of which is to say something that we say here a lot. The only God that we have available to us is the crucified and risen Christ. That is God as he has been revealed. And that is precisely why John can say God is love and know exactly what he means by that. It's very concrete. 
It's this. This is love. This is God and this is love. All wrapped up in one image. This is why in our Acts reading, we can see the Mediterranean world being turned upside down. It's not over something fuzzy and indefinable. It is something very concrete. The love that is on display for us in the sending of the Son and his crucifixion and resurrection as an atoning sacrifice for our sins is a love that is in the very being of God. This wasn't just some sort of misfire for Christ to get up on the cross. It wasn't just something that sort of was ancillary to who God is in himself. This is at the very core of who God is. The Roman Catholic Church's catechism puts it this way. God's very being is love. By sending his only son and the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. I love that phrase. God has revealed his innermost secret. Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, the thing that the world looked at and saw as a spectacle of weakness, utter losers get crucified on crosses, right? was actually God revealing his innermost secret. And his secret is this. God is not tired of you. He's not annoyed by you. He is not indifferent toward you. He has loved you from the very beginning. And this is love, that he sent his only son to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is where we fit in. And it's not unrelated to what we talked about last week, about what is happening in and around us in the Eucharistic liturgy. What we are doing in the Eucharist is mystically participating in Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We are feasting on the very expression of love, the revelation of God's innermost secret. But if you've grown up in the church, then it could be that doing these things sort of becomes rote, right? I know a lot of you have come from other traditions and you're encountering the richness and the beauty of the liturgy. So, spoiler alert, eventually it will start to feel the same, okay? And here I think we would do well to hear the words of German theologian Helmut Thielecki. In writing on the parable of the prodigal son, Thielecki looks at the older brother and he suggests that the older brother is who he is and reacts how he reacts to the love of the father toward the prodigal son because he has become blind and immune to the father's love due to his proximity to it. He existed in the father's house within the realm of the father's love every day of his life to the point that he didn't need to talk about it anymore, didn't need to mention it, didn't need to think about it. And so Tilaki says this, is not the Christianity of many people very much like this relationship? From childhood on, they have heard that there is a loving God. They have, as it were, merely heard something about forgiveness and the Lord's atoning death rather than actually experienced and realized the sinfulness for which they are to be forgiven. 
But when through habit, forgiveness has become something taken for granted, it has been falsified in the process. Then you begin to think of this loving God as someone who could never really be angry with you, someone who surely doesn't take things amiss and is always willing to stretch a point. Heaven becomes a rubber band that always gives. It is quite impossible ever to get hurt by it. The wonder of forgiveness has become a banality. Let us remember this one thing. The worst thing that can happen to our Christianity is to let it become a thing taken for granted. I have to confess to you, I have had many seasons in my life where I have let my Christianity become a thing taken for granted. And I have made the wide, ferocious river of God's forgiveness into a tiny little trickle in my life because I have taken it for granted. I have assumed Friends, the answer is not to retreat into fear. It is to press into love. To recognize more and more that we can become honest with ourselves about who we really are and with one another. Because we can trust that God's love will meet us even in the places of our deepest vulnerability. And so I say to you, friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And in a moment, I will invite you to come and feast at his altar, for you have been set free from fear, and the Spirit has poured the love of God into your hearts. So rest in Christ's love and continue to love one another. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.